0: judgment, judge not. Um, I didn't clarify it with Nicholas, but I assume that uh, he's targeting any number of two things. The first thing being, should believers judge other believers? Um, And or the second thing being, whether or not believers should judge non-believers. Well, whatever the case, this idea of judging others has never been more relevant um, for us, because as believers, we're being confronted inside the church and outside the church on a whole raft of moral and theological issues. It's happening everywhere. So today's text has remarkable significance for us. Judge not, or well, let's see. Um, well, you've arrived at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I hope that by now you're clearly understanding the kind of church that this is. That Paul is dealing with. My summary of this church, and I think it's Paul's also, is that this church is worldly. The church has taken on the culture of the Greek city where they are located, uh, Corinth. Now the problem with the Corinthian church is not that the church is located in Corinth, but that the Corinthian culture is in the Corinthian church. And I think what's scary is that we can probably rephrase that to be even more accurate. The problem with the Corinthian church is not that it's in Corinth, but that it did not realise that the Corinthian culture was in the church. It did not realise it. So they were blind to the world's impact on them. That's the scary thing. Do we understand what Paul means, though, when he calls this church worldly, which he does? Paul's not just saying that they're worldly because they do stuff that non-believers do. I think if that's how we understand Paul, I think we're missing his point. Um, worldliness, when it comes to this church, is fundamental to who it actually is. Worldliness drives their actions. And Paul helps us, I think, in this text to understand what worldliness is. But this is not the first time that Paul has dealt with this. You see, we saw this back in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Listen to this. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. What is it to be worldly? Paul says, well, it's someone who is an infant in Christ. Not a, believe, not, a, not a new believer, but someone who is immature. What characterizes these people is not the Spirit. They don't operate according to the Spirit. They operate according to the world, even though they are believers. So the Corinthian church, what we've been seeing is they deal in a life currency that is the world, and we've seen it. They're driven to quarrelling and division because of their passion for God or the gospel. That's not what you see, is it? What drives their quarrelling and division? It's, no, no, I follow this leader, or I follow that leader, the world. Their heads swell as they take pride in human knowledge and human wisdom. There's no better word that characterizes this church than worldly. And this is the issue. This church is operating according to the world, not according to the Spirit. And um, this issue is central to what we're going to talk about today. It saturates the entire letter. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul brings this contrast between um, spirit and the world, or or spirit and human, and our topic today of judging, judgment. Have a listen to this. The the person with the spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to mere human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The contrast is clear. It's spirit versus human. Paul is asking the readers of this letter, well, what characterizes you? Will the the church embrace these human principles about life and remain immature? Or are they going to embrace the spirit and be mature and make judgments according to the mind of Christ? Well, before we get to chapter 5, we can see that Paul has been dealing with this issue of spirit and judgment, spirit of the mind of Christ and judgment. But in chapter 5, it all comes to a head in quite a remarkable fashion. Um, Paul is confronted with this awful incident, um, and the issue is incest, of all things. Paul is in chapter 5 writing about this issue because it's a report that has come to him, and so he writes back about it. And it's a disturbing report, surely. So literally, at the end of verse 1, it reads, a man is having the wife of his mother. That's how it literally reads. The wife of his father, sorry. And it's written in the present continuous tense. So it's happening and it's ongoing. So it's not an event that happened you know, last year, it's an ongoing event. Um, so a man is sleeping with his father's wife. So Paul is, dis- is dealing with this, with this disturbing report that's come to him. And as we read this letter, we're rightly supposed to be disgusted by this event. But not simply for the reason that it's a disgusting thing. There are three reasons why we should be disgusted by this event, which I think we often uh, overlook. The first thing that we realise is that everyone knows what is going on here. Everyone knows about this sexual relationship. That the relationship exists just in and of itself is disgusting enough. But that everyone knows about it, Paul is just, that's enough. Um, The second thing that we learn is that this sexual relationship is being treated as a badge of honour. This lifestyle choice, a dangerous new phrase, is being venerated, it's being glorified. Um, They're loving it, they're they're being admired, they're being looked upon with eyes of envy. I mean, the only reason that someone boasts about something um, is if it is valued in some sense by the surrounding community. There's there's no point to boast about something if it's not valued by the community in which you live. You see, the Corinthian believers see this incestuous lifestyle, literally, as being hip, fashionable, as kind of cutting edge. It's the new thing. And Paul is disgusted. That's the second thing. The third thing that we learn is that the Corinthian believers we see that the Corinthian believers are doing nothing about it. But they're not only doing nothing about it, we see that, um, that, that this, this act is actually outdoing the pagans. So um, Paul tells us that the Gentiles are not even doing this stuff. So Paul's disgusted that this man is sleeping with his father's wife, Um, Paul is disgusted that the church has treated this sexual relationship like it's the normal thing to do. Paul is disgusted because this this action warrants boasting about. And Paul is disgusted because the believers are engaging in this sexual activity that even the Gentiles would not do. In summary, the Gentiles, the non-Christians, the the non-believers, are living more holy lives than the believers. This is the shocking situation that Paul is dealing with. So the question that needs to be asked is, well, how is Paul going to sort this situation out? What's Paul's first response? Well, Interestingly, his primary issue is not with the man who's sleeping with his father's wife. His issue is with the Corinthian believers. He says, pick up your gavel. What's a gavel? Yeah, it's what the judge has, the hammer. He says, pick up your gavel and use your gavel. What is it, what's the gavel for? It's not just the kind of a, a fun. It, yeah, once the judge has made a decision, he brings the gavel down, the hammer down, the judgment is passed, and the judgment is executed. Paul says, Get your gavel out and start using it. Pass judgment on this guy who is doing something awful. Have a look at verses two to five if you have your Bibles still open. And you are pr- um, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship? the man who has been doing this for my part, says Paul. Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of our Lord. Judge him. Carry it out. Obviously what Paul is saying here is going against the Corinthian culture because they're not doing it. In this culture of sexual permissiveness, Paul says, out with tolerance and in with judgment. Judge him. Now, This idea doesn't go down too well these days, does it? How dare you judge me? Who are you to judge me for what I am doing? Or better still, what right, what right do you have to judge me for my actions? Um, You don't know who I am. You don't know my history, do you? You can't do this. This is my space. These are my rights. This is My life. Butt out. We've heard it. But you know what? Paul doesn't stand for this. He stands up to the prevailing church culture and says, No, judge that man. Throw him out. Well, big call, Paul. On what grounds are you judging this man? Are you passing judgment? I mean, Paul wasn't there. Um, He doesn't belong to the church. He he may know the man, but maybe he doesn't. He doesn't live in Corinth. He's not a Greek. What makes him think that he can pass judgment on this situation, on this man? And his answer is really simple. He says, if you think in human categories, which I know you're very good at, if you think in human categories of time and space, um, well, you're right, I'm, I'm not there. Um, clearly but Paul has already established the true nature of church the church is a a spiritual reality of which Paul is a part and on these grounds he says in verse 3 for my part even though I am not physically present I am with you in spirit Paul is Uh, He's not absent, distant, or removed from this situation in the most crucial category. Spiritually, he is there. No, he is present, and he's shown the Corinthian believers exactly what it means to live in a church, something that is a spiritual reality. And so what does Paul do? Well, he begins to exercise the mind of Christ. And in so doing, the Corinthian believers are supposed to look at Paul, however many hundred kilometres away, and see that he is present and active in that church. And take note. As one present in the Spirit, as one operating according to the mind of Christ, Paul says, judge that man, throw him out. For two reasons he says this. Firstly, and this is quite amazing, I think, for the man's sake. We read that he's put out of the group in order to destroy this man's flesh. It doesn't sound too good when you hear it like that. Now, I think we have to understand Paul, when he uses this word flesh, which, which is the word sarx in the Greek, when he uses this, he's normally t- not talking about this flesh, he's talking about the flesh, you know, the spiritual, na- the, the sinful nature. So, when Paul says, remove this man so that his flesh, his sinful nature, might be destroyed, it's kind of a good thing. Do you see what Paul is actually doing by judging this man? He's actually trying to save him. Listen to verse 5 really carefully Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. For what reason? so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That the Corinthian church has not judged this man is an indictment on the Corinthian church. If they were not thinking in a worldly way, but with the mind of Christ, If they were not thinking according to human principles, but according to the spirit, then they will show concern for this man's spiritual eternity. They would show love, and they would deal with this man, and they would throw him out in order to save him on the last day. So by not judging him, think about it, they're in a sense condemning him. Isn't that interesting? We often think, and I think more importantly feel, we often think that when we judge people we're condemning them. But Paul says, no, don't be mistaken, it's the opposite. Paul tells us that by not judging the man, they were condemning him for eternity. So the first reason Paul believes the man should be thrown out is for the man's sake. The second reason the man should be judged is for the church's sake. Um, I buy bread from Coles or Woolies, um, and uh, I've got no experience with making bread. I don't know about the recipe. I know there's a few ingredients in there. I know that yeast is in it, but I've got no idea how yeast works, okay? But Paul, Paul says here that um, if you pour, put a small amount of yeast in dough, some dough, in time it will work its way all the way through the dough. I'll take his word for it. So this is the principle that he gives us here. All of the dough will be impacted by a small amount of yeast. That's the principle. So let's apply the principle. If you do not judge this man in time, um, his actions, this attitude, whatever, will work its way through the whole church. That's the principle. I was thinking about this, and I thought, really, Paul? Is that true? Um, it sounds like a good principle, but, but does it, is, it, is it real? Does it work? And I think this is really interesting for us today because we believe that a private life is a private life. Um, how can someone's private actions, whether people know about them or not, impact the public-believing community? Paul's saying it can You see, one of the great pillars of modern Western society appears to contradict Paul's yeast principle. This is it. Nick, you can do and believe whatever you want, just don't let it affect my life. Keep it private, don't let it affect me. And we understand that there's this separation between private and public. Keep your religion to yourself, Christians, don't let it get into politics. That's the idea. But Paul is kind of bucking this this idea, this principle. So in what sense is Paul's principle right? How does it impact me if someone lives as they like in private, whether I know about it or not? Well, I had to think hard about this. And I think what I've come to is this. Perhaps Paul is talking about how culture is formed, how church culture is formed. Um, we, know, we all know that culture doesn't just happen, right? So let's take coffee as an example. Ten years ago, you couldn't buy good coffee anywhere. Um, but one by one, cafes started selling good coffee. Uh, one by one, new coffee roasting companies started up selling good coffee. And now, if you go to someone's house, you know, rarely do you get, do you get the old Nescafe. It's real coffee, you know. It's changed. A coffee culture is born. The coffee norm has moved from there to here. What is good coffee has changed. What is coffee changed? That's not coffee, says my brother-in-law, who you know. Um, But the coffee culture started, it happened, and it changed. By one coffee at a time, the coffee culture came into existence. The coffee norm shifted dramatically when we look back over the last 10 years. The Corinthian church culture um, it was not a stagnant culture, but it was a shifting norm and obviously in the wrong direction. It kind of started with good coffee and went to bad coffee. The incident that we read about today and the tolerance of it, it didn't come out of the blue. You, you don't just get incest in the church. It doesn't just happen like that. It's my feeling that when Paul talks about yeast working through the whole dough, he's talking about something that's already happened. Why else does he state the yeast principle straight after the rebuke about their boasting about the situation? Listen to verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? The yeast has worked through the whole dough already. It's done. This is the reality that Paul's talking about. They're at the other end. He says, look back. The yeast has worked. The church accepted the incestuous relationship as normal. In fact, it was more than normal, wasn't it? Um, It was worth boasting about. In the same way that good coffee has become normal in Perth. Sexual depravity was the norm in this church. So, um, the yeast has worked its way through the dough. This is an issue. So it becomes clear now how throwing out this man is for the sake of the church, I think. Firstly, Paul wants to put a stop to this culture going any further, if that is possible. Paul is trying to stem the flow of this tsunami that is called ungodliness. And by throwing this man out, what he's attempting to curb is a rampaging wave that has flooded the church. Secondly, he's he's throwing this man out. Paul is trying to resensitize the church, I think. They've lost touch with what is good, They've lost touch with what is godly. They need to learn afresh what it means to understand sexuality in the mind of Christ, as one who is thinking spiritually and not humanly. So Paul's not only trying to stop the flow of ungodliness, but he's also trying to get rid of an embedded culture of ungodliness within the church. And to achieve this, Paul's um, Paul's starting point is is very basic. Um, He exercises the mind of Christ and deems incest to not be worthy of Christ's body, that it's based on worldly principles. So he judged the man should be thrown out of the fellowship. Paul shows in that action, in that judgment, that they can reclaim Christ's body from the sickness of, of ungodliness that has saturated it. And they will begin to do this as they start to rid the church of the yeast. Um, Even if it's gone all the way through the dough, Paul says, it can start somewhere. So they've got to get rid of the yeast. But that's the problem. Remember? What was the problem with the Corinthian church? They didn't realise there was yeast in the church. How can you get rid of something if you can't see it? There can only be one possible way that you could do this, and this is somehow get perspective. You have to get perspective. And so this is Paul's role. This is why he's writing. Paul excels in bringing perspective to churches. He opens their eyes. And what does he say to achieve this? Well, what he doesn't say is this. Where is your faith? If you were real believers, you wouldn't be doing this. Are you even believers at all? Because I'm starting to wonder. It's really interesting that he never goes down that line. But we do all the time. He's judging the church, but he's not judging their faith. He's not doing that. He doesn't want to shake their faith. And I think that we can learn a real valuable lesson here. Um, How to deal with churches and people that have been consumed by the world. Um, How we deal with ourselves when we realise we've been consumed by the world. Um, This is how Paul deals with it. Um, Paul does not use harsh words that undermines their faith and chops at it. No. This is what Paul always does. He gently grabs their shoulders and points them to Christ, to the gospel by which they have been saved. One of the most refreshing things about Paul. So what does Paul say to do this? A simple question. What are you? What are you, he says to this church? Of course it's a rhetorical question, he answers the question for them. He says, well you are bread, guys, you are bread, it's done. You are bread, it's a great thing, but you're not any kind of bread. You are bread without yeast, that's what you are. You are unleavened bread, you're flat bread. Paul has given them some perspective, that's what you are. Well, you're supposed to be living like you are, guys, The problem is you're living like a whole wheat loaf. You're supposed to be a Turkish bread, but have a look at your life, it looks nothing like a Turkish um, flatbread. That's the issue. You have the wrong kind of bread. And the problem is the ingredient in there that's made it go... Paul's remedy is really simple. Just get rid of the yeast, guys. Get it out of there. Verse 7 and verse 8. Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch. Listen up. As you really are, he says. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. According to Paul, and he states it, they really are unleavened bread. It's the most encouraging thing that someone who is engaged in the most awful act you can possibly think of to hear. That's what you want to hear. Paul doesn't question their faith. He tells them what they really are. You've got it. That's what you are in Christ. You're not a whole wheat loaf. They really are flatbread, not because of the good or bad things they have done. They're not a flat loaf because of the good or bad things they haven't done. They really are unleavened bread. Why? Because Christ has been sacrificed. Christ is the grounds for their flatness. This is what Paul wants this is the way that Paul wants to give them perspective. They are what they are because of Christ. That Christ would die in the place of a sinner. Yeah, even you, the one committing incest. Yes, even you, the one who says, that's okay. Even you, the one that says, I wouldn't mind doing that too. For you, that's who Christ died for. That Christ would take God's wrath that the sinner deserves for that. That Christ, in defeating death, gives the sinner life. He's not condemned for that. This is what you are. You are pure. You are guiltless. You are free. You're righteous and you are, get this, you are holy. This is what he's saying to this church. And where incest fits into the picture becomes remarkably clear. It does not. Where not dealing with incest becomes all of a sudden remarkably clear, it does not fit. The gospel has this amazing capacity to give perspective in ungodliness when we cannot see ungodliness. And that's Paul's remedy for those who are struggling to see where culture and Christ-likeness starts. I find this text remarkably relevant for the church today because it it pinpoints an issue that really does elude our grasp. The issue of exercising our mind in judging one another exercising our mind of Christ to judge one another. You see, this was the real issue that Paul is taking up with the church. The church could not defend itself from the ungodliness that had saturated it. It, had, it was impotent to exercise the mind of Christ to say, no, get out. But we've learned that is for each other's sake that we must judge one another with the mind of Christ. Do we have the humility to submit to one another? To submit to our leaders? To submit to our pastor? To be judged by them with the mind of Christ? You know, I want to reach the day of the Lord. Please judge me. I think we all want to reach the day of the Lord. Surely we, could, we should be saying, please judge me. It's for our sake that this culture of righteous judging must exist in our churches. But we've also learned that we must engage in judging one another for the sake of the body of Christ, to keep it holy. We cannot believe the world's lie that we cannot and must not judge one another in the church. Because this is exactly the point that Paul is getting at in this letter. The culture had so infiltrated the church, the Christian ranks there, that it determined who judged judge to about what. The church today, I think, on this issue of judging one another, is characterised by the world. And that is, we operate according to those human principles. Don't judge me. I come to church, I'm a believer, but don't look at my life. Don't, Don't invade my space. You don't know me. It's my space, my rights. We know it all. And we hear this in the media about Christianity, but the Christians use it against other Christians in the same kind of way. Big walls go up. Don't judge me. Paul says, you are wrong. You are in... God's house. You are in, you're under God's roof. You're in Christ's kingdom, and in Christ's kingdom, you'll be judged according to his standards by people with the mind of Christ. Paul says, Judge it. Judge that incest. The principle says, Judge gossip. The principle says, Judge exorbitant, greedy living. Paul is saying judge drunkenness, judge greed, judge adultery, judge sexual immorality, judge rage, idleness, whatever it is, don't let it fester in this church and become yeast. That spreads throughout it. For whose sake do we judge? Or not judge so that we can make someone feel a bit better by not judging? them. No, for Christ's sake, that's the point here. That's why we judge. To keep his body pure. Paul is clear, he's determined that ungodliness must be dealt with in the church. And he wants the church to open up to that. And of course, what if people get offended by this? This is the kind of the big thing, isn't it? What if people get offended and leave the church because the church t- starts to begin to exercise the mind of Christ in this way? Well, yeah, I suppose that's where the rubber hits the road, doesn't it? Um, the thing about worldly culture is that worldly culture normally is sweet to taste. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It's a good thing, often. The difficulty comes when the Bible teaches something that tastes bitter and the world teaches something on that same topic, but it is sweet. But the church is not called just to run after the sweet, is it? It's called to chase chase Christ and his teaching. So will we begin to engage one another and start to judge one another with the mind of Christ? Oh, Husbands and wives, parents and children, friends, prayer partners, um, leadership teams, diaconate teams, ministry teams, accountability groups. I mean, what does it look like? I don't know what it looks like here at Common Bay, you know. I I don't live here, I don't know the dynamics, I don't know the structures, I don't know the context. You know, but be very careful. First, be careful who you judge. In verses 9 and uh, 10 and 11, we find out that it's not about judging those people outside the church. Paul's real clear. No, nah, this is an in-house issue. We're not talking about non-believers that come in off the street to church for the first time and it happens that they're sleeping together. And it's not about them. Uh, it's not about your, your work colleagues at church who are at, at work who are atheists. It's not about your your family, your brothers and sisters who grew up in Christian families who have strayed from the faith. It's not them. It's about people who have confessed that Jesus is their Lord and they want to submit to him as the king. So we say, yeah, we'll help you to submit to him as the king. And Paul summarizes this in chapter tw- verses 12 and 13. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Don't worry, God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you, just in case you didn't get it the first time. What does this judgment that Paul has been talking about look like? Well, yeah, it's been reserved for the believers in our church, this church, locally, I think. So be very careful who you judge. Be very careful. Um, But we've also seen that it looks gentle. It is Loving. Um, And the reason it's gentle and the reason it is loving is because Paul doesn't say, um, uh, 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 uh. he says, there's the gospel, there's Christ. That's how he does it. That's why it's gentle. Um, Surely, judging someone with the mind of Christ, if Paul here is our model, means helping them rediscover who they really are takes time that's how Paul judged the church that's how he sought to curb unholiness in his in the church that's how he sought to develop a holy body of Christ now it would have been a while ago but do you remember the the, the first three words in verse 9 of chapter 1 this is my little summary of the whole entire book of the, of Corinthians and i think it's the theme here as well today in the midst of this horrendous moral failing, horrendous, you can't get much worse really, horrendous moral failing, when Paul starts to write this letter to this church, what does he say? God is faithful. What a fabulous truth that he starts off with. He knows this church, he knows the reports, he says, God is faithful. Um, when the world has crept into that church, when the world has crept into that life, for the person to hear at the start of that level, ah, yes, God is faithful. He will complete the work that He has started. What a most fabulous thing to hear. You are unleavened bread. Not because of what you have done, because of the sacrifice that is Christ. Praise the Lord. Let's live as flat bread, not as whole wheat loaves because that is what we are. Let's exercise our mind of Christ um, and judge one another for our own sakes and for the sake of the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it really is difficult to um, see stuff that is going on inside our lives when it's just a part of of everything that happens around us. And these things just slowly seep in and creep in and and we're oblivious. But God, we've heard today in your word that it's the gospel that is this amazing light that brings perspective. And God, as I pray that um, as we leave here, that Um, you'll give us discipline to sit under your word and meditate on what you have done for us, that you would reveal to us in our hearts, in our minds, where we have just overlooked stuff as normal, as Christ-like, as churchly, as godly, when in actual fact it is ungodly. God, would you make these things um, really uh, uh, visible for us to see? And God, the challenge for us today in Abhaziz, we saw that you want us to engage our brothers and sisters in helping them to remain godly and holy. Give us the humility to be open to that. But God, we know even more that we will abuse this process. We will hurt people with it. So give us the gentleness and the humility and the discernment that you need, that we need, to be able to do this. Continue to focus our heart and our mind when we do these things on the function of it, to reorientate them to the gospel. Help us to not shake people's faith or or undermine it, but help us to strengthen it and encourage it as we do this. God, we pray that you'll build this church up, that you would strengthen it, that it would become godly, holy in your sight, that it would be distinct from the world in ways that it should be distinct from the world. And where it's not, we ask that you would bring that to light in a drastic way. Give us the humility also to respond appropriately. (coughs) And even when we do feel embarrassed and hurt, by your spirit, I pray that you will restore us quickly um, so that we can be the people that you want us to be. Flat loaves with no yeast. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.